Being a mother is an attitude, not biology. An unknown writer once said, if you give me any three words, I'll write you a story about my mother. Story is in our DNA, and of course, so is she. We gathered stories from men and women in all walks of life. Stories about the ones we have, the ones we are, the ones we know. This includes stories about stepmothers, godmothers, grandmothers, birth moms, foster moms, the mom up the street. It includes stories about not being a mom and stories about mothering in other ways. No matter how you slice it, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Hi everybody, I'm Lupe Padilla Mitchell. I'm a life coach of mothers and families and a mother of three adult daughters. I'm Katie Mitchell, actress, writer, storyteller, and mom of a teenage son. So welcome to If It's Not One Thing, It's Your Mother, a podcast where we are sharing all kinds of stories about that word, mother, and then having conversations with the people who wrote them. This is what we're exploring today. Can a child bring out that mothering energy in a father? Today we have a story from Dan Bukatinsky. It's an excerpt from his book, Does This Baby Make Me Look Straight? Besides authoring this wonderful book, Dan is a television writer, producer, and an actor that you probably remember from Scandal. So, here's Dan's story, and we'll talk to him after. Wake up and smell the fingers. Daddy? I'm in my five-year-old daughter Eliza's bathroom rinsing her toothbrush when I hear her chirp from behind me on the toilet. Even now, I'm oddly caught off guard sometimes by the title, Daddy, as though I'm suddenly looking down at a new suit I don't ever remember putting on. But I like it. It fits me. Makes me look thinsy. Yes, monkey, I replied distractedly. She holds her fingers up to my face. Then come three tiny words. Oh, how those words repeat in my head over and over again, echoing in slow motion. Smell my fingers. Nothing good ever comes after those words. I flash to where her fingers may have been. A field of lavender would be my first choice, but that's not likely at this late hour. Any chance it's the perfume counter at Bloomingdale's? No. She doesn't have her driver's license yet. She's five, remember? My brain is losing its desperate battle to steer away from the more likely candidates. On the one hand, I don't want her to feel any embarrassment or guilt. Her body is her temple, it's all beautiful, and my love for it and her is unconditional. On the other hand, smell your own damn fingers, kid. What about me looks like I'd like to smell your fingers? Tell me now so I can change it immediately and no one ever makes this mistake again. But there's no time to get into all that. I find myself obliging. I hold her adorable glitter nail polished fingers to my face and I smell. There's definitely something there. Some smell. What is that? Is it ass? Could be. What is that, darling? I ask trying to hide my anxiety, although my voice is starting to climb north. Eliza giggles. It's my tushy, Daddy. Okay, not great news. In fact, I feel lightheaded. But it's not her fault. Maybe she hasn't mastered the finer points of the bum wipe. We're in the early days of this particular skill set, even though she is five. Darling, we don't touch our bum bums, okay? Did the toilet paper slip? That happens, sweetie, but with practice. No, Daddy, she says with a conspiratorial grin. It's my front tushy. I don't know what happens next because I've blacked out. The room is spinning. Images flash from my past, or maybe somebody else's past I'm too panicked to watch carefully. All I can think is, how? How the hell did I end up here in this particular conversation with this little girl holding these particular fingers up to this face? 
I can't seem to remember the series of events that led to this moment. Any of them. It is the same sensation I have after plowing through four bowls of cereal while watching The Biggest Loser. Even though it feels like I was somehow propelled through time and space and then plopped unceremoniously in this moment, in this bathroom, with this funky-fingered cherub smiling up at me, I know it happened in real time, evolving into the man I've become, the son, the husband, the daddy. It was life happening one terrifying moment at a time, the result of big decisions and small ones, some easy and some daunting as hell. I guess the Big Bang would have to have been around the filming of Under the Tuscan Sun. I had two and a half minutes of screen time with Diane Lane, which thankfully took six weeks to shoot in a beautiful countryside in Tuscany. I'd become quite close with the director, Audrey Wells, who was there with her two-year-old daughter. She spied me playing with little Tatiana and asked if I'd ever thought about having kids. The answer, of course, was yes, I had, but my boyfriend had mixed feelings. Ah, uh, it's been almost 20 years. I shouldn't say boyfriend. I should say partner. Too cold, no. Lover? No, too moist. Okay, husband, but only in California ever since Tom Arnold agreed to marry us on the patio of our house. Our two kids as witnesses only a few weeks before Prop 8 went into effect in 2008. Don and I always managed to come up with perfectly good reasons why we shouldn't have kids. Audrey, though, proceeded to give me an impassioned speech about discovering the father in one another, which really got to me. I remember calling Don from a payphone and yelling, I want to discover the father in... Click. The line went dead as I ran out of minutes on my calling card. It took about a year for Don and me to get on the same page. After all, our options were limited. We couldn't just forget to take a pill. Don kept waiting for someone to leave a newborn in a basket on our doorstep. Our close friends Michael and Mary urged him to be a tiny bit more proactive. That's bullshit, I remember them saying. Nobody's going to leave a kid at your feet. If that's how you really feel, go out there and get your baby. It was all Don needed to hear, apparently. His aha moment. Because after that, we started making the necessary calls. Surrogacy was the popular option, but Don was convinced we'd wind up using my sperm and he'd instantly feel left out by the two-against-one shenanigans. He grew up with two brothers and avoids triangulation at all costs. More importantly, he was uncomfortable with the idea of surrogacy, felt it was nothing more than womb-leasing, and wanted no part of it. I knew adoption was the only other choice, and since there are so many children being born every day who need parents, we both thought this would be the best. I'd be lying, though, if I didn't say I had some hidden trepidation. I don't like to admit it, but I was petrified about my own ability to bond with an adopted baby, a child with no genetic ties to me. It was lack of experience, really. Maybe ignorance? Fear? What will it smell like, I think? How will the baby know I'm its daddy? Let's face it, I was an idiot. That was until the day of the birth, the second Eliza was lifted into the air like Kunta Kinte in Roots, I fell in love. And I mean that second which made the road to get there worth every gut-wrenching, nerve-wracking, tear-squirting moment. The whole experience bonded us. And then, in that delivery room, Don, Monica, and I held hands as first Eliza, and then two years later, Jonah, were cut from their umbilical cord and from their nine-month lifeline to Cinnabons, Mountain Dew, and Marlboro Menthols. Tears streamed down all our cheeks. It was clear, as sentimental as it may sound, that our kids were born out of the hearts of three people, not just two of us, and not just the one. It's funny, though, becoming a daddy. I fully expected to discover what that director had spoken to me about, the father within. But what I never imagined, what I could never have ever predicted, 
was finding the mother within me. There is no doubt that when Eliza got home, I fully took on the role of mother to my cub. If I could have stuck a boob in her, I would have. And I always became defensive when people assumed I didn't know what I was doing. Like when we would be traveling and every woman on the plane would offer us important advice like, don't forget to feed her, or air pressure makes baby's ears go ouchy. I'd be like, really? And here I was about to stuff her in the overhead compartment. It's like that Elizabeth Stone quote, being a parent is like deciding to have your heart go walking around outside your body. I wanted the world to know that something had changed in me, shifted, on a cellular level. Something that made certain things like her gestures, smells, and particular smiles make me want to burst into tears. What is that? Sadness? Joy? Pride? Being a parent. Back in the bathroom, Eliza looks up at me with a little shrug. It's cute, but clearly I'm meant to do something, say something. I wasn't prepared for this. Why wasn't this in any of the books we read prior to having kids? Hey, listen, Polka Dot, it, it's your body and you're the boss of it, yeah? But not so much with the fingers in your, you know, front tushy, okay? You just want to keep all of your areas clean. Not bad given I had no lead time to prepare my response. Anyway, it'll have to do. But let's face it, front tushy instead of just saying vagina? I got work to do. Yay. Okay, we're thrilled that you're here, and I just have to say, your book might just be one of the most delicious reads ever. <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, you know, read the book, listen to the book, but we have heard chapter one now six times. Because I, I went, yeah, <laughs> I laugh hysterically every single time, and I weep. Every single time that, my friend, well, now that we're friends, means <laughs> that you are um, a really special writer. Definitely. Well, that's, that, it's nice to hear. I hope I can ever do it again. <laughs> <laughs> my question here is the mothering. You found the mothering in you. Yes. Yeah. What is that difference? I mean, yes. what, I mean, you could speak to that because, you know. To some degree, I think I was trying to, certainly when, you know, my kids are now 13 and 11. Um, and at the time that I wrote the book, they were much, much younger. But certainly the process of being the parent of an infant and then another and reconciling the idea that there are two dads and the questions that came from people like, where's the mom? And the fact that I would scrutinize the semantics of motherhood maternal instinct. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't talk about the paternal instinct. Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess it was one part defensiveness and one part trying to really be more accurate about what is, I think, the human reaction to new parenthood, you know, to, to having a baby in your life for the first time and what that does to you. And I feel like it does different things for different people. And, and you can't predict it until there's a baby in your arms. Like you can, you know, you can think you do want kids or you don't want kids, or you'll be a terrible parent. You'll be a great parent. And none of those things you can really actually, who even knows at the end of the day until the kids are in therapy and 25 and, <laughs> and spending enough money to, 
to unpack all of it. But the idea of f- discovering the mother in me was kind of my cheeky way of saying at the same time, I don't believe you can only describe this as a maternal instinct. Yes. And at this, and, and, and playing both sides off the middle, I was also trying to say, okay, okay, if you're going to call it motherhood versus fatherhood and the role of the mother versus the role of the father, mm-hmm. then what are we going to describe this feeling I have, which is, which to my limited in vocabulary, let's say for the, the lack of other words for the for it, mm-hmm. it felt to me inside like the like my maternal instinct emerging, mm-hmm. and so I I described it as finding the mother in me, which was like this unbelievably nurturing desire. And I and I used to say if I could have breastfed, I would have mm-hmm. this protective emotional. Icon, and again, it's parenthood, by the way. Every father and mother should feel this way, but Absolutely. but I think it is attributed to the woman mostly. Um, but uh, I did feel like I was feeling feelings and was emotional in a way and protective in a way and feeding m- the baby in a way that made me feel like I can't imagine feeling more like a mother if I tried. Well, you you said yourself that there was this cellular difference that occurred, you know, something shifted in you in, in that way. I think it is a lack of another word for it. It, it. So we just assign it mother, mothering, a mothering feeling, a maternal feeling. Yeah. And I wouldn't be so cavalier to say, and I, nor do I believe it's accurate that every parent feels this way. Like, you Agreed. know, some fathers do feel like fathers. They feel a, a, a tad removed. They feel grateful that someone else is in fact doing a particular kind of nurturing and or care and or feeding like roles roles you know land in the laps of those who are equipped for those roles and whether you're a man or a woman i believe you naturally and again there are a lot of same sex couples where both dads share those duties and there are a lot of straight couples where both of the parents share those duties and feel equally nurturing right but there are there are many many where one naturally feels more again, for lack of a better term, maternal than the mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes gay, the, a, a gay couple will take offense to the question, like, which one of you is the mom? You know, it is an offensive question because it is assuming that one of two men has to be feminine. And yeah. it's, of course, a, a deep-rooted, deep-seated, long-standing misogyny in our society anyway that, that puts it that way. But that's why I feel like it's about it's about terminology more than anything else. And, you know, my husband's very nurturing, but in a very different way. And right. so for me, it was, it was the emergence of certain impulses and feelings and instincts that I didn't know even existed. And um, I couldn't, I had no other way of describing it. Love right. it. Now that you explained it the way you did, it is about just different energies we bring. So my next question is, what kind of advice would you give another father who perhaps has to tap into an energy that isn't naturally where he comes from? Yeah. What kind of advice would you give to bring out that energy? Well, oh my gosh, you know, it's hard for me to give advice to any other parent. The long answer in a way to your question is that I could certainly say that I do think in many ways parents need to act as if that the what what a baby needs is what a baby needs and whether you're feeling it or not you know if you're a dad and you have an infant in your arms and you can take your shirt off and they can feel skin against skin and you can make that eye contact even if inside you're thinking about 
you know, errands you have to run or work or, or whatever it is you're thinking about. There is benefit, obviously it's not ideal, but there is benefit in acting as though and giving that baby the connection, the feeling, the eye contact, these things that, that we now have learned that infants viscerally need from their parents. Beautifully said. Yeah, and that act as if. You know, I spent a good year of my of my first year of parenthood wondering, well, what would Gwyneth do? What kind <laughs> of, you know, and for good or for bad, she's a friend of mine. So I would often be like, all right, show me what bottles you buy and I'll buy those bottles. <laughs> so the advice is really, it's complicated because on the one hand, you have to honor the who you are and, and what your style is and what your needs are. And at the same time, you also have to find a way to act as if and give that child, especially when they're in the first year of life, exactly what you know they need. Yes. I'm getting up at three and I'm feeding the baby. It's what he needs. Exactly. And yeah. by the way, each baby is different. You know, you have two, so you know that. I mean, oh you have to also look God. over there and see, how do I parent this particular child? That's right. That's right. You know, um, I like to think of families like their own private little culture, their own world. Mm-hmm. And when people try to fit in the box of a neighbor or the mother next door, it's just, it all gets confusing. People just have to be more accepting. Look, we we all know it. The stakes are so high when you're raising a child. You are so invested in your way being right because it means, mm-hmm. it means you're... Yes. You, you have to believe that what you're doing is the best thing for your child. And there's no better way <laughs> to make you feel good about your choices than to convince everyone around them <laughs> that they have to do it your way. And right. so I find that almost any person who subscribes to a philosophy, whether it's the kind of diaper they buy mm-hmm. or it is sleep training versus no or not, mm-hmm. or whether it's about, you know, you name it, you right. name it. Mm-hmm. From the most mundane to the most profound, mm-hmm. you have been, all of us have been told by others to do it the way that they do it. And part of the reason, and it's very compelling, by the way, to, to be a parent, no matter what, whether you admit it or not, there's some level of absolute panicked insecurity deep down that you're not absolutely damaging your child with every choice you make. Oh, God, and yeah. so nothing feels better than hearing someone say to you, I know the way. I know the way, and this is it. <laughs> and so part of you wants to believe it. And the other part of you might be like, oh, God, that's not even something that I could even do naturally. Like, <laughs> I just don't do that. That's just not something that feels normal to me. And I remember Don and I hearing someone say, you need to talk to your baby the whole time. Like when you're changing their diaper, you need to tell them what you're doing. <laughs> tell them what you're doing. And others would say, they don't know what the hell you're saying. Why are you talking through every move you make? Because someone told us that there's nothing better than respecting that baby. The fact that you're lifting up their legs and changing their diapers and manipulating them. It's like you have to respect their body and talk through what you're doing. And we would do it because it made sense intellectually. But, you know, on another level, it was like, this baby has no idea what I'm saying. (laughs) At the end of the day, what really was playing on that child was hearing a soothing voice talking to it while it was being lifted. And exactly. there's lots of good that can do. But guess what? The parents who are not talking to them while they're being changed, who knows? Maybe those kids wind up far less needy or less insecure <laughs> or less. Exactly. So there is, you're exactly right. There are 9 million right ways mm-hmm. and only a handful that are probably criminally wrong. Right. Exactly. And 
And we, we tend to want to tell other people the way to do it because what it does ultimately is it, uh, it becomes an endorsement of your choices, which is really all we want. You know, I talk about this double-edged sword the whole time. Like on the one hand, I always felt a little defensive. I had a lot to prove. I wanted people to know, yeah, that's right. We know what we're doing. So don't tell me anything because the minute you tell me something, I'm assuming you're telling me because you think I don't know what I'm doing and I have to prove to you that I do. On the other hand, to a large extent, I had no idea what I was doing. So I wanted people to tell me the way because it was such a relief to have someone say, oh, honey, this is the way to swaddle. It's going to change your life and do it like this. And so, you know, I wanted it both ways the whole time. I was impossible during that time. So this this brings me to a question then. How, so are there certain things that you learned from your mother, whoever raised you, um, that uh, you really carried with you with this mother energy you brought to your kids? Or actually yeah. learned how not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, like that. you're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a, that I, I, I don't really, I didn't necessarily, I mean, there are things that I notice that I do that I, that remind me of things that my mother did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of things about what we now know mm-hmm. about about the first year of infancy and what's important psychologically and developmentally are things that I don't feel like were, I have no, obviously I don't know, but because I was an infant and I, and, but I certainly know from the fact that I wound up in show business. So clearly I have enough cracks in my, <laughs> in my ego and my need for to be seen that in many ways there are probably ways in which I'm making up for those things in the ways that I truly wanted my kids to feel seen and truly wanted my kids to see nothing short of delight in my eyes when they walked into a room. Like I almost feel like you can make lots of choices about the kind of fabric softener you use and whether it's organic or mm-hmm. not and the foods that they eat and all that stuff that we that really makes us feel like we have control over who they're going to become when we really don't. Mm-hmm. But really, it comes down to maybe only one thing, which is this unbelievable feeling that they are loved mm-hmm. and that they see delight in their parents' eyes when they walk into yeah. a room. I think hands down, that by itself can almost push away any other stupid choice you make or don't make in terms of the long-term impact on the child. And that, you know, maybe that goes back to advice on any new parent, but it's like grade yourself on a curve. If you, you could be making every mistake in the book in terms of bottle choices or food or timing or, you know, sleep, you know, sleep training or not, but it's like that, that, providing that child an idea that when they look up at the eyes of their yep. parents, they see yep. they're seen and they, then uh, they see eyes reflecting back at them. The delight at their presence on this planet is going to have the longest long-term effect. That definitely does. That is a beautiful way to end this interview. Dan Bukatinsky. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me talk about it. It makes me feel like I want to be a better parent. Makes me feel like that too. In fact, the whole time you were just saying that, I was like, I, I hope I'm, my kid is feeling that because I there was one person in my family that I knew I was seen by and I carry him with me always. I know that yeah. I was loved and seen by that person. And you're right. That is nothing else matters. But I have tweens now. So, I mean, they see less than delight in my eyes often. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I have to really remember that even in the tough times when they're telling me that I'm the reason their life sucks, yeah. which I hear often, almost like a mantra. But I also take delight and learn this through a lot of therapy that the safety a child mm-hmm. feels to be able to express their anger and express their displeasure at their parent mm-hmm. is such a great sign that they feel safe and attached that every time they insult me, I think, oh, I'm so lucky. Yeah. And, and that your love is unwavering so they can come at you. And that's, and that is that, that light you hold for them, your unwavering love for them, your higher belief, regardless of uh, who they are being in the present moment is everything. Everything. Thank you so much. What a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful opportunity to chat with you. Yeah. I'm so glad you took some time uh, out of your schedule and I hear you finished up on a show. Uh, recently, yes. the KDC. Yes. 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 Yep. I'm, it was a really good experience, and uh, um, and I was happy that my kids were able to see it. Mm. And uh, it's National Adoption Month in November, so I'm also very happy to be hearkening back to those days and inspiring those who may want to adopt or those who did, and honoring them. Beautiful. Great. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yay. So you know how much I love to learn. Yes, I do. (laughs) I am like a Google queen and then I get lost in that rabbit hole learning. (laughs) I do. And so when I get to sit still with someone for a a few minutes, like we did just now, I get to walk away with a sense of what it's like for a father who, for lack of a better term, is mothering his child and how... It's an energy, but we just attribute it to mothers and how it could be offensive that I wouldn't attribute it to him. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that I learned that. I love my eyes are open to that. And the other part is I loved when I asked him the question to give advice to other men to get into this kind of mother energy. And he says, act as if. I loved that too. The simplicity is of act as if. Mm -hmm. If this child needs this, what will I do in this moment? Mm -hmm. Act as if. Totally agree. And that's why I love doing this podcast so much. Because everybody thinks it's about your mother. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. No, it's about that mothering energy. Telling stories from every angle. The mother, the one who is being mothered. And not necessarily by any biological connection. Wide scope. Definitely. It's a rich ground for story making. That's what we're really discovering. Okay, that's the show. And to find out more about our writers, go to our website, Instagram, or Twitter. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. And that's the number one, not the word one. Want to do something to help us? Go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review us. Five stars would be nice. You can say something complimentary because you know what? It really does help other people find our show. And also share us with a friend because word of mouth is the best compliment. Join us next week.